Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me as we together study the Come Follow Me lesson for November 16th through the 22nd. And this week we will be discussing Ether chapters 6 through 11. Well, those watching on video can see I am again filming from uh, my apartment. It's much uh, easier to do since my apartment is a quiet place as I am the only member of my family here in Hong Kong as the rest of my family is in the U.S. And I hope everyone in the U.S. who's watching this is safe uh, and wherever you are, uh, given the recent uptick in uh, coronavirus cases. And someone asked, what floor is my apartment on? I am on the ninth floor here. So we've gone down 20 levels from my office, but still much higher than uh, most homes, at least in the U.S. are. And uh, yes, those lights behind me uh, are the beautiful uh, high-rise buildings in my surrounding neighborhood. Hong Kong is uh, an incredibly beautiful place uh, with just an absolute concrete jungle with unbelievable Sky rises, uh, you can see those from my office, my office and, and you, that's evident from, from my home as well. So if you've never been to Hong Kong, uh, take the chance to come, but probably not during coronavirus season because you have to stay in a hotel for two weeks. Well, this week uh, we'll continue uh, our study of ether. Uh, we're grateful that Moroni was able to take the 24 Jaredite plates that were uh, discovered uh, by uh, the Nephites so long ago, and uh, that he was able to live long enough to take that record and condense it. Now, the records in today's lessons are, are a little bit unusual. Um, we get so much detailed history, uh, as Moroni just seems almost like he's obsessed with going through every single generation. You'll recall uh, in chapter 1 of the Book of Ether, and starting in verse 7 through 32, you just get Moroni going through essentially a uh, genealogical history of the Jaredite kings. And then in these chapters, especially the chapters we'll be discovering, discussing today, he, he literally goes through every single one of those kings and says something about them. Sometimes he goes on for several verses telling a whole story. Sometimes he uh, goes very quickly through them, but uh, every single one of them um, gets a discussion, which I think is an interesting uh, behavior by Moroni. He, he seems so interested in making sure that we know each generation, going from uh, Jared, starting at the beginning, all the way down to, uh, to Ether, actually the prophet. And uh, I'm not exactly sure why he, why he does that, uh, why he felt it was necessary to do so. Uh, and, you know, in, in the other places where we've seen Moroni writing, and he, and he, hasn't, he doesn't write that much, uh, but certainly the first few chapters of Ether, we saw this, uh, his incredible ability to provide important details of a story for the specific purpose of helping us draw out of that story uh, the important concepts. 
And he certainly does some of that here, but he seems to be also very obsessed with making sure that we get every single generation uh, is accounted for, uh, so that we know all the way from Jared, again, up until uh, essentially the destruction uh, of the Jaredites. Uh, but before we get into those details, we first have to get uh, the brother of Jared and his people uh, across the ocean. You will recall last week we, we discussed the, uh, the powerful temple experience that the brother of Jared had as he uh, you know, took his people uh, out of uh, wherever they were. And, and let's not take for granted, it's not 100% certain that they were in uh, that, that this was involving the Tower of Babel. I think most of us put that together, but um, it just mentions a tower. It doesn't say where it is, and it talks about uh, confounding uh, the language, which, which could mean a number of things. So, you know, usually we take for granted that, you know, the Jaredites came out of the Tower of Babel story, um, but that's not 100% certain based on uh, the record that we have. But regardless of where they came from, uh, the Lord took them out, so that their language would be preserved, uh, and, and that them as a people would be preserved. He took them to uh, the seaside, to the safe ocean place, where they stayed for four years. If you recall, they didn't even bother to build permanent buildings. It's as if they knew that's not where the Lord wanted them to be. Uh, they, they stayed in their tents, but nonetheless, um, even, even though they knew that wasn't where the Lord wanted them to be, for four years they didn't uh, it appears they didn't bother to ask the Lord where they should be or what their next step should be until the Lord finally came down and, and chided the brother of Jared uh, for not progressing, for not getting on his way. Uh, and then the brother of Jared gets to work, repents, uh, gets to work in a very serious way as they build eight barges. Uh, and then the amazing uh, temple experience where he goes to the mountain, uh, moltens out 16 small stones, and sees the finger of the Lord uh, through the veil, eventually seeing much more than uh, the finger of the Lord. Uh, and with, uh, with that as a reminder where we're at, uh, we now turn to chapter 6, and we'll begin verse, uh, in verse 3. And thus the Lord caused stones to shine in darkness, to give light unto men, women, and children, that they might not cross the great waters in darkness." You'll recall one of the themes that we picked up on last week was uh, two, two, twofold. One was that this journey that the brother of Jared went on, this, uh, you know, where they're in a, a safe place, but a place where their progression is limited and they need to get out in order to progress with a promised land awaiting them, but this long, difficult, uncertain journey in between. And we talked about how that similar story had been paralleled by, uh, by, by, by many uh, people within the scriptures. Uh, Lehi, of course, uh, follows the same pattern. Adam follows the same pattern. Uh, Abraham followed this pattern. Uh, Moses and the children of Israel certainly did, as did the, the early saints as they uh, migrated uh, further and further west, eventually settling in uh, the Salt Lake Valley. And we talked about how this pattern is a parallel or a template. Remember the word temple comes from the word uh, template. Uh, this pattern is a template for our plan of salvation, for the way in which we were previously with our heavenly parents, 
then we needed to come down to this earth where we would face challenges and, and struggle to progress and to improve and to better ourselves, and eventually with the goal of returning back to the presence of the Lord. And that journey uh, is, is spelled out in the endowment process that we go through when we, when we go through the temple and receive our endowments. Uh, that's, that's the journey that we go on there. And that's, of course, the journey of, of life. Uh, and so the brother of Jared's story is he takes his people across this wilderness and eventually across the ocean is very much a, a symbolic of the journey that each of us must go on uh, in, in our lives as we struggle and go through challenges and through disappointment and through moments of comfort where we feel like we don't necessarily want to progress uh, on our way back to uh, the presence of God. And then another theme that we addressed was that uh, the small stones that the brother of Jared prepared gave light unto them on their journey. And that's what they were prepared for. That's what their purpose was. That's why the brother of Jared uh, created them. And then he asked the Lord to come down and with his finger touch the stones that they would come from uh, just pieces of stone or pieces of glass as they previously had been, to become something more, to become a source of light, to provide them light upon their journey. And we talked about how Moroni even uses the phrase, these things, to describe both these stones and also uh, the record, and how it's, it seems like there is a, a parallel between, uh, in the same way that the Lord came down and touched the stones that the brother of Jared had prepared from the earth, and the way that the Lord comes down and touches the record of the Nephites, the Book of Mormon, and touches it. And even though it came from the earth, uh, literally as Moroni came back and gave it to the prophet Joseph Smith, it comes from the earth and it's touched by the finger of the Lord to be so much more than just some earthy material. It's much more than just the elements that go into creating the actual plates or the actual book or the actual stone itself. But rather, the Lord comes down and touches this record and it becomes a source of light as we journey back to the presence of our Father in heaven. As we journey back to our heavenly parents, it becomes the source of light testifying of Jesus Christ, giving us light along this journey so that we know where to go. And that seems to be what verse 3 is getting at if we look at it, that they shine in darkness to give light unto men, women, and children. Clearly, <laughs> by, using these, uh, by using these phrases, men, women, and children, it seems Moroni is talking more than just uh, the few individuals that, were, uh, that, that, that relied upon these uh, eight barges uh, to go from uh, wherever they were in the ancient world to the promised land uh, in the Americas. Uh, Moroni has a much grander version, I think, uh, vision as he's discussing this verse. And I think it is these the stones that shine forth in the darkness is the Nephite record that Moroni is preparing, will eventually bury up in the earth, and will one day, and already has, come forth to provide light to us uh, in our journey of uh, through the wilderness and through uh, through the darkness, <clears throat> uh, and so let's go to verses uh, five and six. 
It came to pass that the Lord caused that there should be a a furious wind blow upon the face of the waters toward the promised land, and thus they were tossed upon the waves or the sea before the wind. And it came to pass that they were many times buried in the depths of the sea because of the mountain waves which broke upon them, and also the great and terrible tempests which were caused by the fierceness of the wind. So they prepared these boats. It has light. It has air. The Lord said he would steer them. And then they get in these boats. And the wind starts blowing. And the wind blows them towards the promised land. So it's a good wind, right? It's, it's a wind that's going to steer them. Because remember, one of the problems the brother Jared came to the Lord with was we, we can't steer these things. These are like tight dishes. They're, they're waterproof. We have no way of steering these things. The Lord says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of that. And the way he takes care of that is by blowing this ferocious wind, blowing it towards the promised land. But of course, a ferocious wind does much more than just push a boat. It also creates waves and it creates storms. And these storms caused by the same wind that is necessary to get them to the promised land uh, also creates uh, many challenges and much discomfort for them. And I think there's a very uh, applicable analogy uh, between that wind that the Lord blows leading them to the promised land and our own lives, the the challenges that you and I confront in our lives. uh, Often they seem unpleasant. Often they cause discomfort for us. But if we, I firmly believe that if we, if we can, uh, in moments of, uh, in moments of clarity, step back and analyze the challenges of our life, we'll see that it's those challenges that cause the discomfort, that that cause the, uh, you know, disruption to our lives and to our plans that makes it sometimes so difficult uh, to move forward in ways that we want to. It's that same discomfort that's also at the same time pushing us towards the promised land, pushing us where the Lord wants us to go, moving us in the right direction. And so without the wind, without the discomfort, without the tossing and the uh, unfortunate events and, and the challenges in our lives, we have no way of steering. We have no way of getting back to the presence of God. We have no way of getting uh, where it is the Lord would have us to go. Uh, Then in verse 8 and 9, And it came to pass that the wind did never cease to blow towards the promised land while they were upon the waters, and thus they were driven forth before the wind. And they did sing praises unto the Lord. Yea, the brother of Jared did sing praises unto the Lord, and he did thank and praise the Lord all the day long. And when the night came, they did not cease to praise the Lord. So we see this wind is constant. According to this, they don't get any breaks from this wind. It is always there always blowing, always moving them in the direction that the Lord needs them to blow, to go. And as a result of that, the brother of Jared, as uncomfortable as they might be, they're able to look around and recognize that, hey, the Lord is moving us in the direction that we need to go. He's moving us at a pretty good clip, thanks to the fierceness of the wind. And he's also made it possible so that we are in these protected boats. We have light, we have air. What else could we want? Let's thank God for our blessings. And what a great perspective that is from the brother of Jared. Do we thank the Lord for the winds in our life that blow us in the direction that we need to be moving? 
That's hard to do. It's hard to keep that important perspective so that we can recognize that these wins, as discomforting as they may be, as, as, as challenging as they might be, that you know, all of the trials that come into our lives, many of them are the winds that are blowing us where we need to go, making us better people, improving us, and giving us the chance to prepare ourselves to return to the promised land, to go back to the presence of our heavenly parents. Do we give thanks to the Lord for our challenges, for our trials, because we recognize that those challenges and those trials are making us better people? Or as challenges and trials come, do we get bitter and do we get frustrated and plead for the Lord to deliver us, not realizing that, you know, just as the children of Israel, as the brother of Jared and his people, had the wind stopped blowing, yeah, they would have been calm. They wouldn't have been tossed about. They wouldn't have been buried in the sea. But they also wouldn't have progressed. They would not have moved forward. They could not have moved forward uh, without these winds. Uh, and then verse 12, eventually they arrive at the promised land. And they did land upon the shore of the promised land. And when they had, and when they had set their feet upon the shores of the promised land, they bowed themselves down upon the face of the land and had humbled themselves before the Lord and did, did shed tears of joy before the Lord because of the multitude of his tender mercies over them. I, I can't even imagine the joy that these people must have felt the moment that those barges hit solid earth, that they hit the land. I, I mean, first of all, they must have been incredibly happy to get out of those uh, f f wooden submarines that they had. Where, uh, I mean, we don't know the details of them, but to hear it described, that, that could not have been comfortable to be in there for as long as they were in there enduring those circumstances. That, that must have been torturous. Uh, so how incredible it is that they were able to maintain an attitude of gratitude throughout that whole process. But to finally have that over and to be able to get out, you know, a little more than a week ago, I finally got out of quarantine and that was two weeks in a comfortable hotel uh, when I had food delivered to me every day. I mean, I hated it, but it was unbelievably easy uh, compared to what these people went through. I can't imagine how grateful they must have been. And then at the same time, it must have been incredible to have an experience where it was so painfully obvious that the Lord was in charge, that what had happened had been the direct intervention, the direct guidance coming directly from God. There's no way they would have made that journey except through the hand of the Lord. And I'm sure there must have been many days on the water in which many, if most of them, in those barges must have thought to themselves, we're going to die here. This is crazy. What in the world are we doing? And then to finally hit the shore and have that faith confirmed, knowing that, yeah, there's no doubt that the Lord led us and guide us. There's no doubt whatsoever that the reason we're moving forward, that the reason we're here is because the Lord guided us. Uh, what an incredible experience that must have been. And we'll see that the power of this experience carried for many, many generations. And kings that followed went back and relied upon 
this experience, this knowledge that no doubt whatsoever, they had been led by the hand of God. And so I think for me, that teaches that we all need experiences in our lives in which there is no doubt that the Lord has led us, that the Lord has guided us, and that what has happened to us is because of God, because the Lord has done something remarkable uh, in our lives. I, I know I can think of many experiences, uh, I shouldn't say many, several experiences in my life in which, you know, it was obvious, it was clear that this was not a coincidence. You know, one of them happened 11 years ago, uh, the process of my family and I moving to Hong Kong. We were uh, comfortably living in Dallas, uh, Dallas, Texas. We had a, a nice house. We had two cars. We had two kids at the time. Everything was just seemed to be going great. Uh, and then I lost my job. And then I had to look for new opportunities. And you know, speak, being a Chinese speaker and my wife from mainland China, we thought, okay, let's give Asia a try. We figured eventually we'd be over there at some point anyways. We were just kind of like the brother of Jared. We just kind of wanted to prolong it. We were very comfortable by the seashore. Uh, but eventually, uh, when I lost my job, we kind of realized, okay, maybe this is kind of the kick in the pants the Lord that we need, the Lord is giving us in order to get us where we want to go. And so as we set about to consider uh, what markets we wanted to go to, we, we identified four markets that uh, I thought that had you know, big U.S. law firms in them, and we, and we ranked them. Uh, number one on our list was Shanghai. We figured I spoke Chinese. I'd been to Shanghai before. It's a beautiful city. That'd be pretty cool to live there. Number two was Beijing. Again, spoke Chinese. Uh, great city. Lots of good opportunities there. Number three, we put Singapore. Uh, we knew some people that lived there, uh, soon it was a, a pretty cool town. They spoke very highly of it. We thought that'd be a pretty neat place. And then finally, at the very bottom of our list of these four cities, if nothing else came up, we'd consider Hong Kong. Yeah, famous last words, right? Um, the opportunity came up. Uh, the only one that came up was in Hong Kong. So, uh, you know, we prayed about it. It, it felt good. Uh, I had some experiences that led me to believe that, yeah, this is where the Lord wanted us. But we had a lot of challenges uh, to, to move from, you know, Dallas, Texas, big homes, big cars, big furniture, whereas Hong Kong is pretty much the exact opposite. Uh, tiny apartments, tiny furniture. Uh, but there were some things that we weren't quite willing to give up on the way. So we put a lot of our big furniture on a slow boat uh, on its way to Hong Kong. And then we came to Hong Kong together as a family. Uh, my, my wife first uh, spent a, a few weeks in mainland China with, with her parents while I started my new job in Hong Kong at the, and at the same time uh, spent nights and weekends looking for an appropriate apartment. And I looked at a lot of apartments that could fit this Dallas, Texas size furniture uh, <clears throat> that was on a boat on its way over uh, into uh, an apartment that could fit this furniture into it. And I looked and I looked and I looked. And I also, at the same time, I was considering schools and, and where our kids wanted to go to school because it's not like the U.S. and our kids don't speak Cantonese. And so they couldn't just be plopped in a, a, a local school. Uh, we, we heard about a school 
that was not too far from where my work would be and it seemed like that was the school that uh, we wanted our kids to be and so I started focusing my apartment search uh, in that area uh, and of course we had a, a budget as well and so it seemed like lots of things were working against us we wanted in this area we wanted this budget and it had to be a certain size that could fit our Texas size furniture that was on its way and eventually I found it I found this apartment and it's the apartment I'm filming in right now We've been here for, uh, I signed the lease on this almost 11 years ago, and we've been renewing ever since. And all of our stuff fit in it perfectly. My kids got enrolled in that school. Uh, my career took off there. Uh, you know, the, the church was wonderful. It was a, It's a five-minute taxi ride from where we're at um, and given us lots of opportunities to serve over the years. And Looking back on that experience, I cannot deny that the Lord knew exactly what he was doing. It wasn't what we wanted to do. It wasn't the place where we wanted to do it. And these circumstances weren't what we wanted either. But the Lord just kept giving us tender mercy after tender mercy. And eventually they all stacked up, leaving me without any doubt that the Lord had led us here. And the Lord prepared a way for us to, to be here, to be happy, so that we could have the experiences that the Lord wanted us to have as individuals and as a family. So I uh, apologize for that kind of personal digression, but it, I think it's so important for us to have those experiences in our lives and to remember those experiences and not let go of those feelings. So that in moments of weaknesses, and moments of doubt, and moments of uncertainty, we can look back and say, you know what, I don't know what's going on now. But looking back, I can see exactly what went on at that time. And I have no doubt that the Lord was leading me, that the Lord was preparing me, and the Lord put me in the place where he wanted me to be. And that's exactly what happened to the Jaredites here. As they arrived, there could have been no doubt that this was the place. This was their promised land. This, it was the Lord that had led them to where they eventually arrived. Now about this story, I, I, I'll admit I have some major questions about this story. I can't quite picture how these boats worked. I mean, were they literally like airtight submarines made out of wood? That seems kind of strange. I don't how plugs in the top. I mean, how did the plugs work without leaking? Uh, there were animals on the boat, it says. They were in these things for 344 days. How did in the world did they pack sufficient food uh, that they didn't all die from scurvy or you know some other terrible disease, especially with the animals? What did they do about their waste and the animals' waste? I, I have a lot of questions about this story. Uh, and, you know, my personal opinion is it didn't quite happen exactly the way that Moroni described it as happening. I think either Moroni took a few liberties in retelling it, or the brother of Jared took some liberties as he recorded it, or throughout the process of it being translated from generation to generation or transmitted uh, by generation, you know, certain things were exaggerated or, or what have you. I have some serious questions about this story. Is it possible it happened exactly the way it did? Yeah, of course it's possible. But again, I have questions about it. But 
I've, I've said this before and I'll say this again, these little details I don't really care about. To me, they don't mean anything. And the example that I, I frequently use to try to drive this point home is, think of the story of the Good Samaritan. Is that a true story? Well, we don't know. I mean, we know it was made up by the Savior. It was similar to possibly other stories that had happened at this time. But, you know, we don't know who the, who the man that was walking from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho was. We don't know who the thieves were. We don't know who the, who the Levite priests were that walked on the other side. We don't know who the Samaritan was. We don't know the location of the inn. It's a made-up story as far as we know. But does that matter? Of course not. It might not be a true story, but it's a story that is full of truth. It is a truthful story. And that is so much more important than a story that actually happened. There's so many stories that actually happened but are completely irrelevant, that are totally unimportant. But there's very few stories, and I mean very few stories, that are as truthful as the story of the brother of Jared. I love this story. And whether or not it actually happened in the exact way that it's recorded by Moroni in the book of Ether, I have no idea, but I don't really care. Because there is so much truth in this story. Truth about how to get answers to prayer. Truth about uh, having faith. Truth about uh, life's journey and overcoming challenges and relying upon the Lord in doing so and truth about the nature of God and our relationship with him. It is so full of truth and it is such a powerful story that I'm not about to give up on that truth or get distracted by some of the details that don't make sense to me. Who cares how many days they were actually on the water? And who cares what the boats were shaped like? I mean, it's interesting to think about and kind of guess. And, you know, if you, if you like to come up with possible solutions, you know, more power to you. But again, my point is I'm not going, I'm not about to lose my faith or to lose sight of the reason that Moroni put this story here in the first place because of a few details that I can't understand. And I hope we can take that same attitude, looking for truth and not focusing on whether or not a story is historically accurate as we study the scriptures. And uh, so I think we take this principle and we apply it to the whole of the Book of Mormon, certainly to the Old Testament, and a lot within church history as well. There's so many details where I think we just have to say, look, I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. But this story teaches me this lesson. And this lesson is truth. This lesson brings me closer to God. This lesson that I get from this story is so much more valuable than the historical facts, than the details about that story and whether or not it actually happened in the way that it's written down. So I think that's something that's very important to, to remember as we study this story uh, and as we study scriptures in general. Let's remember scriptures were not meant to be history books. They are meant to bring us closer to God. And whether or not this story actually happened in the history historically in the way that it's portrayed doesn't really matter because this story teaches me truth about God and it brings me so much closer to him and I love this story 
because of that. All right, so they arrive in the Americas. They arrive in the Promised Land. And the brother of Jared and Jared begin to get old. And so uh, the people ask them to anoint a king for them, which I find kind of a bizarre request, right? I mean, they've, they've been in this land. We don't know how many years they've been in this land at this point, but, you know, there are free people. Uh, we don't know exactly how many people were there. It was, you know, at least 30 from what we can tell. And that's when they arrived. And one would assume eventually they started to grow. And, you know, maybe at this point they're, they're in the hundreds uh, low hundreds, it's easy to assume. And, you know, these people wanted a king? I'm, I just find that a little bit strange to me. And the brother of Jared also found it strange. And he said, let's, let's not do this. Um, but uh, the people insisted. And so they, uh, they acquiesced to that uh, insistence. And uh, interestingly, everyone refuses. Everyone, uh, all of the brother of Jared's sons refused to be king. And also the sons of uh, Jared all refuse, except for one, uh, except for Ariha, <clears throat> who is willing to take up the mantle of uh, king's ho kinghood. Uh, and so he agrees to do so. And he, in fact, turns out to be uh, a righteous king. Uh, verse 30 in chapter 6. And it came to pass that Ariha did walk humbly before the Lord and did remember how great things the Lord had done for his father and also taught his people how great things the Lord had done for their fathers. So here we see again the importance of keeping a memory of, uh, his, uh, of spiritual events in your life. Keeping track of the many ways in which the Lord has blessed you. Keeping, keeping this uh, library of spiritual happenings, of spiritual events, of spiritual stories in which you know that the Lord has blessed you, in which you have no doubt that the hand of the Lord has been there directly guiding you. And that's what Oriha relies upon to teach his people. He says, if you don't trust the Lord, think about how we got here. It wasn't that long ago. And if you can see the hand of the Lord in that, then you can know that Lord, the Lord is absolutely there and we need to keep his commandments. So moving on to chapter 7, uh, so three generations after uh, Jared and his brother uh, have passed away, uh, we start to get uh, divisions within uh, the kingdom. And so for the next five chapters, uh, Moroni goes generation by generation from Jared all the way down to Ether, uh, again, in the same way that he did at the very beginning of the book of Ether. And we get story after story of... Uh, power struggles for the kingdom, uh, son rebelling against father uh, in order to be king, and with the people usually going along with the king, uh, for better or worse. Uh, and, and so we get, again, I'm not quite sure why Moroni does this, why he goes uh, from generation to generation in so much detail. Because we see in the story of the brother of Jared, Again, I believe he took some liberties with the story in order to prove an incredibly important point and give us some incredible truths. And then he spends so much time going generation by generation. So uh, there must be some truths within here. And so we're going to see if we can't uh, dig a few of them out. And again, sometimes, uh, you know, they, they follow the Lord. Uh, everyone is doing what they're supposed to be doing, starting at the top with the king. 
Uh, but we see as, just as often they're not following the Lord. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And, and as a result, uh, they lose the blessings that they otherwise would have had. So uh, chapter 7, verse uh, 27, we see an example of, of when they're doing well. And there were no more wars in the days of Shul, and he remembered the great things that the Lord had done for his fathers in bringing them across the great deep into the promised land. Wherefore, he did execute judgment and righteousness all his days. We see Shul was a righteous king, and what did he use to motivate his people to be righteous as he was? Of course, he used the story of his fathers crossing the great ocean and the ark uh, in the barges being directly led by the hand of God. Again, the great importance of having these spiritual, this reservoir of spiritual events that we can draw from. And this was a point that the Lord uh, hammered home in uh, the Doctrine and Covenants uh, as he was teaching Oliver Cowdery uh, ways in which to receive uh, revelation. Uh, he's, uh, in, in DNC chapter 6, verse 22 through 23, it states, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if ye desire a further witness, cast your mind upon the night that you cried unto me in your heart, that ye might know concerning the truth of these things. Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can ye have than from God? And I love these verses because they teach us that this exact same concept, we need to have a reservoir of spiritual experience that when we have moments of doubt and moments of darkness and moments of questions, we can reflect back upon those experiences and say, all right, I don't know what's going on here, but I know that the Lord directed me at this time. And so I can continue to put my faith and put my trust in him. So that, uh, you know, this, this ability to draw back upon this amazing story of the Lord leading the, uh, lead, leading the Jaredites to the promised land uh, often kept them righteous, but often it was not enough to, to keep them righteous. So in chapter 8, uh, let's uh, read verses 7 and 8. And now Jared became exceedingly sorrowful because of the loss of the kingdom, for he had set his heart upon the kingdom and upon the glory of the world. Now the daughter of Jared, being exceedingly expert and seeing the sorrows of her father, thought to devise a plan whereby she could redeem the kingdom unto her father. So we have uh, a king named Jared who had lost his kingdom uh, due to some uh, internal rebellions, and he was very sad about that. Um, and interestingly, because, you know, he was sorrowful because he had set his heart upon the kingdom and upon the glory of the world. So we're saying that he here was so focused upon uh, things other than God that he would do anything uh, to get them back because this was all he cared about was his kingdom and for wealth and for riches. And his, his daughter saw that, uh, and so she... Uh, devises a plan. See, she sends for a man named Akish, who is a friend of the king at the time. The king's name is Omer. Uh, and her father, uh, Jared, uh, agrees that uh, his, his daughter, uh, he will give his daughter to Akish, because she's apparently a very beautiful woman, and she's going to, to dance in front of Akish, and Akish is going to desire her, of course. Um, and he's, and then, then, and then uh, Jared's going to say, all right, I'll let you marry her if you give me the head of Omer 
the king. And so, uh, we, and so this leads to uh, problems, not surprisingly, uh, but a very specific type of problem that Moroni is very explicit in telling us this problem, which is secret combinations, is what led to the fall of the Jaredites. It's what led to the fall of the Nephites. And if they happen within your society, you better watch out. You better be careful. Uh, verses 18 and 19 in chapter 8. And it came to pass that they formed a secret combination, even as they of old, which combination is most abominable and wicked above all in the sight of God. For the Lord worketh not in secret combinations, neither doth he will that man should shed blood, but in all things hath forbidden it from the beginning of man. And so Akish uses secret combinations in order to uh, an attempt to murder the king. And Moroni uses this story to warn us uh, against the dangers of secret combinations. He goes into this story in much greater detail than in any other story uh, in, in the Jaredites. And, and he covers, you know, 2,000 years almost of history. And this is the story that he provides us the most detail in, other, of course, than uh, the story of, of the brother of Jared. And so Moroni's message is very clear. Secret combinations, stay away from them. They've proven to be the destruction of two societies so far. Uh, and this is a warning for all of us, both for those who inhabit the land, the Americas that the uh, Jaredites and the Nephites were wiped off from because of their secret combinations, uh, and from everyone else as well. We, we have to be leery of these secret combinations. They will get you. Uh, they are they are not good, and so we end verses. Uh, sorry, we end chapter eight with verses twenty five and twenty six. For it came to pass that whoso buildeth it up seeketh to overthrow the freedom of all lands, nations, and countries, and it bringeth the path to destruction of all people. For it is built up by the devil, who is the father of all lies, even that same liar who beguiled our first parents, yea, even that same liar who hath caused man to commit murder from the beginning who hath hardened the hearts of men, that they have murdered the prophets and stoned them and cast them out from the beginning. Wherefore I, Moroni, am commanded to write these things that evil may be done away, and that the time may come that Satan may have no power over the hearts of the children of men, but that they may be persuaded to do good continually, that they may come unto the fountain of all righteousness to be saved. So I love how Moroni here contrasts the, the, the way that Satan works through his secret combinations with the way that, that God works, the fountain of all righteousness, the, he who touched the stones and made light. And, and so the, the distinction between the two is what Moroni would have us pay attention to. So Satan's way uh, involves evil works uh, that hurt other people in order to gain power and those works are carried out in secrecy and darkness. That's how Satan works. It's about selfishness. It's about me. It's about secrecy. It's about darkness. It's about desiring and loving the things, the temporary things of this world. Whereas the Lord's way, it's the opposite. It's do good and bring light to other people. So... It's important to remember that the brother of Jared came to the Lord wondering 
How do I get rid of the darkness? Because remember, they built these barges and there was no light in them. Were they to dwell in darkness? That's the exact question that he asked the Lord in chapter 2. Do you want us to cross the sea in darkness? Do you want us to be in this darkness? And Satan wants us in the darkness. He wants these secret combinations that carry out their works in darkness. That's, what the brother of, that's the question the brother of Jared came to the Lord with. And of course, in receiving the response or in, in the Lord's sanctioning his proposed solution, the Lord gave them light. And in the process of him giving them light, he revealed himself to the brother of Jared. So not only did he receive the light, but in the process of pushing out darkness and replacing the darkness with that light, he, he, he learned of the true nature of God. And the Lord revealed himself to him. So in other words, those who don't seek for light will never see the true nature of God. And thus they will never know their own nature or their own potential. They are happy to wallow in the darkness because they do not seek for light. And because they wallow in that darkness, they will never know the truth. They will never know about God. They will never understand his nature. And thus they will never understand themselves and their own nature and their own potential. So this contrast between the darkness that Satan wants, the secret combinations, and the light that comes from the finger of the Lord that can overwhelm the darkness so that we don't have to make our mortal journeys in that same darkness that Satan would have us uh, endure. Um, so eventually the Lord uh, warns Omer, this king, who then flees uh, from the land, uh, and, and then Jared is able to become king, uh, but it doesn't last for long because this same Akish uses those same secret combinations to take out, uh, to take out Jared. And then Akish uh, appoints him, and Akish becomes the king. Um, and Akish eventually starts fighting with his sons uh, and everyone except for 30 people uh, among this society, uh, not including those who had fled with Omer, but uh, everyone else is, is essentially wiped out as a result. And then Omer comes back. He's able to take his throne. Uh, Omer's son, Emer, uh, is a righteous king, and he even sees the Savior. Um, and so, you know, we, we, wicked king followed by righteous king, and then a few generations later, we go back to wicked king, and then back and forth uh, the Jaredites go. But, you know, interesting to note that, you know, one of their kings at least... Uh, was had prophetic abilities and that he was given the great vision of seeing uh, the son of righteousness or Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 19 in chapter 9 uh, mentions various animals, horses, elephants, and a few that uh, we don't know exactly what those are. Uh, you know, some discussion, people, some people say, you know, there were no horses, there were no elephants uh, in these areas. Uh, this is evidence that the Book of Mormon uh, is a fraud, is not true, uh, to which, you know, other scholars come back and said, well, there's actually, there actually is evidence that there were these types of animals there, or at least other animals that it would have been reasonable 
uh, for either Moroni or for Joseph Smith in the translation process to refer to as horses or elements. Uh, you know, back and forth they go, fighting each other. From my point of view, again, just like the details of the barge, I don't really care. There is so much truth in the Book of Mormon, and I love the truths that are taught in the Book of Mormon. I am not about to throw all of this truth, to throw all of the blessings that have come into my life, all of the insights and all of the spiritual experiences that I've had that undoubtedly bring me closer to Jesus Christ, helping me to better understand him and making me a better person. Am I going to throw that away because the word elephant and horse appears in kind of an obscure verse that really has nothing to do with the story? Of course not. That would be completely insane. So, you know, people can fight that out. If you're one of those that likes to fight that battle, you know, more power to you. I, I, I think they're interesting questions as people go back and forth. And if, you know, you can see confirmation that, uh, you know, there was actually elephants or, or, or mammoths or whatever they might have been or, or horses in the Americas, then that's great. I mean, that that's, you know, can be chalked up as one evidence. Now, I, I don't think it's proof that the Book of Mormon is true uh, by any means. So just as I'm not about to uh, throw out the Book of Mormon because of uh, the mention of these animals, I'm not uh, also about to say, oh, well, this is 100% solid evidence, and if you don't believe in the Book of Mormon, you're an idiot because you're denying science, right? I mean, that's, it doesn't work that way. Uh, no, these things are interesting uh, debates as far as I'm concerned, but they miss the much, much bigger picture. And the Book of Mormon is not valuable to me because it teaches me about the different animals that lived in the ancient Americas. It's important to me because it teaches me about my relationship with my heavenly parents and with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, before long, uh, in chapter 9, in chapter 9, uh, the people turn to their wickedness again. Uh, the Lord sends a drought and poisonous serpents. Uh, interestingly, all of their animals head southward as they flee from these serpents. The serpents pursue them, and then the Lord stops the serpents. And so all of their, and so, but the serpents stay there, and the people aren't able to get past them. And so uh, these serpents essentially prevent them from getting to their animals. Uh, interesting detail about how that works. Uh, must have been incredibly frustrating for the people to, because again, there's a drought going on at the same time. And so right now their animals are their only source of food. And, but they're not able to get the help that they need because of these poisonous serpents. Uh, it's right there, right in front of them, but uh, their way is prevented uh, because these serpents are there. And the serpents are there because of the mistakes that they're made, that because of their own wickedness. And I think that's a great analogy for often the position we get ourselves in uh, because of the sins and the mistakes that we make. Our salvation is right there. We can even look at it and see it. We know exactly what we need, but because of the serpents, because of the sins, because of these habits that we can't quite kick, we're prevented from it. And I can't imagine a more frustrating situation. And when I think of what hell is most likely like, I think that probably has something to do with it. Uh, but the people repent and the Lord sends the rain. And so even though they can't get to their livestock, uh, they at least are able to grow their food again. 
uh, we go now to chapter 10, uh, and let's start in verse 2. And it came to pass that Shez did remember the destruction of his fathers, and he did build up a righteous kingdom, for he remembered what the Lord had done in bringing Jared and his brother across the deep, and he did walk in the ways of the Lord, and he begat sons and daughters. So again, we have another righteous king who's able to use the story of them coming forth to the promised land to convince his people to be similarly righteous as he is. Again, showing the power that righteous stories have, that, that stories evidence the Lord's hand in our lives, uh, how important it is to have those. Uh, he has uh, one of his posterity is named Riplakesh, who is uh, just really a pure tyrant, taxing the people, uh, imprisoning them for not paying taxes, and then using them as slaves to build uh, his, his own kingdom. Uh, the people eventually rise up in rebellion against him, um, Morianton, one of his descendants, is, is a good king, uh, but interesting commentary in verse uh, 11, he loses the presence of the Lord because of his weaknesses. Uh, verse 11, and he did do justice unto the people, but not unto himself because of his many whoredoms. Wherefore, he was cut off from the presence of the Lord. So just as those, just as the people a few generations before him were cut off from their animals, because of the serpents that were there. Uh, Morianton was cut off from the presence of the Lord because he couldn't kick his violations of the law of chastity, of his many whoredoms. So even though he did good to the people and he was a good and a just and a fair king, I love it, he, but not unto himself. He was not just, he did not do justice unto himself. He couldn't help himself because he couldn't overcome these habits. Who knows how the Lord would, will eventually judge him. I don't know really anything about him other than this verse. But uh, I think we all know people in similar situations. Maybe you've even been in such a situation where we lose the presence of the Lord because of a few, because of a habit that we just can't kick. And oh, how frustrating uh, that can be. And uh, you know, how important it is to draw upon the Lord and his power to deliver us, to save us, to... Uh, through his mercy and through the atonement, uh, that we can again gain his presence, just as the brother of Jared gained the presence of the Lord through his faith. Uh, under Lib, another king, they prosper by the hand of the Lord, and the serpents are finally uh, destroyed. So Lib is a, a righteous king, and uh, everything is going very well uh, for the people under Lib. They get rid of the, 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 uh, the serpents, they're trading with one another, they're industrious, and the Lord is, is blessing them. Um, and his son, uh, but his son unfortunately has the kingdom uh, taken away from him, uh, and he reigns in captivity, which I'm not quite sure how that works. I would think if you're the king and then you're thrown in jail by someone, by a coup, uh, it seems like you're no longer the king and I don't know how you're still reigning. Um, but, uh, but that's the language that Moroni uses. Uh, and eventually, these secret combinations uh, return to the land and overwhelm the people. Uh, chapter 11, the prophets tell the people to repent, but the prophets are rejected. Uh, wars and destructions follow until the people repent, uh, which they do. But before long, they do wicked again, and they again are rejecting the prophets. 
And then we, we end today's lesson uh, summarized in verse 22. And they did reject all the words of the prophets because of their secret society and wicked abominations. So as we wrap up uh, today's lesson, and as we think of themes, uh, certainly the idea of having overwhelming spiritual experiences in which we know the Lord was leading us and guiding us uh, is important. Uh, we see this come up again and again as a way of keeping the people righteous, despite the temptations, despite the doubts that they have, remembering the great blessings that the Lord has given unto them. And then this continual struggle within Jaredite society between the darkness of secret combinations and the light that led the people miraculous, miraculously uh, to the promised land. And that struggle between darkness and light is something that is eternal. It's never going to go away. And it's within each of us. And so I, my hope is that we will have the light to see the spiritual experiences that the Lord has given to us. And we will be able to keep those lights burning by remembering those spiritual experiences. Remembering what the Lord has done for us. Remembering the miracles that he has performed in our lives and the ways in which he has delivered us. And teaching those to our children so that they can know that the Lord has blessed their fathers and so that they can seek their own uh, light-giving experiences in their life, so that they too have that light and that they can pass it down from generation to generation. And that even though these secret combinations, these secret works of darkness, they too are getting passed down from generation. And we shouldn't be surprised when many in the world are, are teaching essentially darkness to their children, not teaching them about the light that comes from Jesus Christ. But how critical it is that we share the light with our children and share that light with those around us, uh, having first recognized it in our own life, recognized the undeniable ways in which the Lord blesses us. And so I hope we'll have the faith to see that, to see those miracles in our lives. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.